eyes uh, to read a portion of our sermon passage this morning. You can turn your Bibles to Daniel uh, chapter 11, and I do hope you have a Bible with you, as it's always useful to have one open in front of you as we study God's Word together. And if you don't have one with you today, I would encourage you to grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby you, and you'll find uh, our text today on page 749. And we come to the final vision in the book of Daniel today, as we're going to look at all of 11 and 12 together. And it's a text that has tried many a teacher and confused many a congregation, but we'll see how we get on with it this morning. And so what I want to do is just read verse 36 of chapter 11 through verse 3 of chapter 12, or actually through verse 4 of chapter 12, which gives you... A sense, I trust, of uh, what the Lord has for us to study along the way this morning. So let me read that for us and then pray and we'll continue on today. So listen now as God does speak to you uh, through his perfect word. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many, and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and many ships. And he shall come into countries, and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land. And tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train, but news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as has never been seen since the nation until that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. The grass withers, and the flower fades. 
but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask for your help this morning. We ask that you would guide us, that you would lead us, that you would direct us and teach us by your Spirit, that we might know your mercy and grace towards us in Christ, that we might be strengthened even this day to persevere until the end. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, you may be seated. It's over the last 75 to 100 years that evangelical Protestant printing presses have been churning out volumes, commentaries on the book of Daniel. And one of the most influential ones from roughly 80 years or so ago uh, was published by a Lutheran scholar named H.B. Leopold. And when Leopold came to the text that's before us today in Daniel chapter 11 and 12, he said this of our passage, the chapters might be treated in Bible classes, but we do not see how they could be used in a sermon or in sermons. And his point in saying that was something that I trust some of you might understand, that there are some passages that you can come to that generate some sermons that you have heard that seem to be better suited for a Sunday school classroom, full of a history lecture, full of contextual and intellectual details, but they don't seem to preach, as preaching, of course, is meant to pierce the heart, it's meant to direct the soul unto the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the passage before us today, as like I said earlier, it's tried many a teacher, it's confused many Christians. And what I want us to do along the way in our study this morning of this final vision is see what I hope will be the simplicity and actually the clarity that does belong to Daniel's last peer into the future in this wonderful book. Now, it's important to realize, if you haven't been with us in recent studies, that what we've seen throughout the book of Daniel, that it's a book full of visions. You might remember the first six chapters. Daniel primarily functions as a revealer of visions. But it's in the second six chapters, those final chapters in the book, that he's primarily a receiver of visions. Three visions in particular, the last of which is before us today. And so there's something about the broader context of Daniel uh, that you do need to understand for this final vision, but also something about the specific context that we looked at last week if we're meant to understand this vision rightly. So again, the, the broader context of Daniel is something that goes like this. What we have seen throughout the stories, throughout the visions from the start of the book, is that you have pagan powers rise in worldly authorities, and they begin to persecute. They begin to do harm to God's people, commanding them even to renounce their faith. Uh, they command them to bow before the gods of this world, otherwise they face death. But throughout those visions, throughout those stories, we've seen that God always preserves, he's faithful to his promise that there's a remnant that he is guiding, that he is, is guarding, and that remnant remains faithful to the Lord. And so often he, through this miraculous power of rescue, brings them back from the grip of death that they might praise his name because students, I hope you remember that what we see over and over in Daniel is that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall for there's one kingdom that will outlast them all. And all of those themes are going to be seen in this final vision. 
But there is a specific context, too, that belongs to what's before us today. It's what our associate pastor, Mark Trigstead, walked through last week in chapter 10. If you just glance back to chapter 10, you'll notice that we find this vision uh, coming to Daniel in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Uh, He's getting this great word. It's a word about a great conflict. And we saw last week how this word of a conflict, Daniel understood, and he began to mourn in despair and discouragement for three weeks. This heavenly messenger arrives, and he says, Daniel, I've come. I've come to strengthen you. And, and kids, the way he's going to strengthen Daniel from 21 days straight of mourning and grieving, if you notice verse 14 of chapter 10, he says, I've come to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. So that's the vision before us, what's going to happen to Daniel's people in the latter days. And this is a vision, of course, that that isn't meant to confuse. It's not supposed to confound us. Look what it's supposed to do to Daniel, uh, according to what we see in verse 19. This heavenly messenger says, Daniel, you are a man greatly loved. Fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And therefore, when you come to this passage, what you want to come to as hearers is to a vision that to Daniel in that specific context was to give him peace. It was to give him strength. Surely it's no stretch for us to say that us in our specific context today, we're meant to find peace. We're meant to find strength from what can be something of a murky and mysterious vision that is before us. So this final vision, the way I want to walk through it in chapters 11 through 12, is five parts. And uh, these five parts really are simple summaries, not just of the, what I think are the central spiritual lessons in the text, uh, but those of you that have been with us since we began our study of Daniel in January, uh, you might understand how all five of these summary truths are ones we have seen over and over and over throughout the book of Daniel. So, summary truth number one that I want you to see is the reliability of Scripture. Look at verse 2 and 3 of chapter 11. The heavenly messenger now has prepared Daniel for what is coming and begins to speak the vision by saying, verse 2 and 3, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and do as he will. Now, you need to recognize that there's been this, of course, central theme of kingdoms rising and falling, and one kingdom outlasting them all throughout the book of Daniel, but often uh, the way that is expressed is through these visions that have belonged to various kingdoms uh, that came in that ancient world. So, for example, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, you might remember students, he had this nightmare. And as Daniel reveals the truth of that nightmare, he simply says that what it's telling Nebuchadnezzar is that there's going to be this passage of power in these ancient kingdoms, from the Babylonian kingdom to the Medo-Persian kingdom to the kingdom of the Greeks. And then if you get to chapter 8, you have this kind of vision that Daniel receives of this ram and the goat. And it's actually quite clear, isn't it, in Daniel chapter 8. It's nothing more than a rearticulation of the same thing. There's going to be the kingdom of the Medo-Persians, that rises out of Babylon, well, in time, 
What's going to replace the Medo-Persian kingdom is the kingdom of Greece. And the kingdom of Greece is going to expand throughout so much of the known world through this mighty, majestic leader that history recounts to us as nothing more than Alexander the Great. And so what you need to see here right from the outset of this vision, and I think it's going to help some of the simplicity, is what we're seeing yet again is another vision about the passage of power from one kingdom to the next in what we often refer to as the intertestamental time. So if you ever kind of looked in your Bible to that blank page of sorts that belongs to the close of the Old Testament before the the beginning of the New Testament, these centuries that belong to the experience of God's people that so often don't get much history in the Bible. Well, they actually get a lot much more prophecy in the Bible than you may have realized. So much of Daniel's prophetic realities are pointing forward to that situation of the passage of kingdoms from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece, ultimately to the kingdom of Rome. And so if you just scan your eyes through verse 3 through verse 20, what you'll see is nothing more than a quite detailed, quite specific, but quite rapid also pronouncement and prophecy about what's coming from the Medo-Persian empire to the Greek empire. You get even these mighty figures that unfold, not just Alexander the Great. You actually see along the way in this passage, even someone as famous as Cleopatra is alluded to. It's quite striking. All I'm trying to say in these first 20 verses is how what Daniel prophesies genuinely came about. You could sit in a Sunday school class and match up all of the rulers and match up all of the time periods and match up all of the major details, and it flows quite nicely from Daniel chapter 11. Now, what I want you to see from those first 20 verses is the reliability of Scripture, that God prophesies what's going to come. And because God is true, because God is perfect, because God is all-wise, it actually happens And so in the same way that this heavenly messenger comes to Daniel in verse 2 begins by saying, I'm going to show you the truth. Uh, Children, did you know that every time you open the Bible, it's as though Jesus Christ and his spirit, our triune God says, I'm going to show you the truth. And this truth is reliable. So you kind of race through the first 20 verses. It's nothing more than the passage of power from the Medo-Persian kingdom to the kingdom of Greece. And it's something about which all scholars are agreed. That leads us to the second summary truth I want you to see today is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Our younger children are often occupied uh, throughout the week when they're at various places, maybe a doctor's office or even traveling in the car with these activities that some of you might recall or remember, uh, search and find kind of activities where you have this large, relatively detailed picture, you know, that's on, uh, I suppose, something like a legal sheet size of paper. And then in like upper left-hand corner, there's 20, 25 different things that you have to find kind of tucked away and hidden uh, within the passage. You have to seek and find all of those things. And now, now kids, I could give you a, a seek and find exercise that you could do later today in Daniel chapter 11 and find the number of times just Daniel 11 uses the word, at least here in my ESV translation, of shall. It shows up in chapter 11 123 different times shall, this shall happen, this shall come, this will follow. Did you know that every time you see the word shall in the Bible, it's this summons to recognize God's sovereignty? Because he can only prophesy what's coming through his servants because he's predestined what's going to happen. 
He can only deliver promises to his people because he's decreed that it's going to come to pass. Well, look at verse 20 and 21. Uh, We're told, then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And if you wanted to match this up in in history, you would have this Seleucid Empire that kind of verged off from the kingdom of Greece. And we're talking about the passage of power here in verse 20 and 21 from a man named Antiochus III to his son, which is eventually a power stolen by Antiochus' nephew, this man known as Antiochus IV. It's a man that we've met already in Daniel chapter 8. And what's quite striking, it should be at least striking to us once again, is that the story as God is speaking about this future that belongs to his people from the sight and perspective of Daniel, is he's racing through something like 170 years of significant history, you know, the advance of Alexander the Great, the rise of the kingdom of Greece, and he focuses on this simple ruler in the Seleucid line, Antiochus IV, uh, this man who's going to come without warning and attain the kingdom by flatteries. Well, and the reason he's going to do that, at least tell the story in this way because Antiochus is the one that's going to war with persecution, with power, and even great tribulation upon God's people. Because if you just scan your eyes through verse 21 through 30, uh, what you'll see is this. He's a formidable ruler, Antiochus the fourth. Verse 21 through 24 underscore that his dominion increased. He's fierce with vengeance. Verse 25 through 27 says he comes against the Ptolemaic king in the south, but he doesn't succeed. And so when he returns to his own territory in verse 28, he killed many Israelites. And then you'll see in verse 29 and 30, he conceived of coming up against the Ptolemaic land again, but this time ships from Katim. They aided the king of the south, and so Antiochus withdrew in rage. Verse 30, and he comes against the people of Jerusalem. You'll see the end of verse 30 talks about it as the people of the holy covenant. So we see the reliability of Scripture. Uh, We see the sovereignty of God. And now as we think about this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, once again, I want to show you thirdly the futility of Satan. Because look at what we're told in verse 31 through 32. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress. He shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. So we know this happened in something like 167 BC. Antiochus comes into Jerusalem. He sets up this abomination of desolation, which is pagan sacrifice and the holy site, which is God's temple there in Jerusalem. He didn't do just that. He forbid all Jewish people from obeying, from keeping the Old Testament law. He he forbid all Jewish people from the normal ritual religious acts of worship that they were supposed to give to Yahweh. Not only that, he said that those continued, those who continued in their faith to Yahweh, well, they were going to be killed if they didn't recount their faith. 
And if you ever had time, I suppose students, you know, in your summer break, you could do such a thing under the guise and supervision of your parents. You can read some of the history that belongs to Antiochus's brutal tyranny in Jerusalem, and you would be struck by just how awful it was, how terrifying it was, how brutal it was, how much it seems to fit, because it does, what's in the passage before us. Let me give you one simple story about what I mean. You had to renounce your faith in Yahweh, otherwise Antiochus would kill you. He would make you a martyr. And so there was a story that was told in Jerusalem not, not long into Antiochus's reign where a mother and her seven children who, who, who believed in Yahweh, uh, they were brought before Antiochus's soldiers. And what the soldiers did is they took the oldest son. They began to torture him brutally in the sight of his mother and siblings saying that he must recant his faith, otherwise he would be killed. And history records unto us that he cried out just before his death, you remove us from this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us to an eternal life. He died. They just took the next son, next oldest in line, began to torture him brutally before his mother, and now five siblings that were living and just before he died, history records him saying, do not think that God has forsaken us and he will deal with you. There was this hope clearly in, in a future vindication, which clearly was the reality that they had understood from this passage. Because look at the end of what we're told in verse 32. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. It's actually quite clear here in verse uh, 33 through 35 that it's alluding to this time that we often refer to in history as the Maccabean Revolt, or those people that were devoted to uh, the worship of the Lord, and one of the high priest's sons, himself a priest named Judas, he was nicknamed children the Hammer, so he was called Judas Maccabeus. He revolted, he rebelled against the Greek empire, and he grabbed unto himself many people who were interested in overthrowing uh, the Greeks as they rose up and took action. But some of those people, of course, weren't uh, particularly credible in many ways. It's why you'll see what we're told in verse 34. Uh, when, when they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves with, to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble so they shall be refined, purified, made white until the time of, of the end. And all I'm wanting you to see here right now is not just the reliability of Scripture and the sovereignty of God, but it's the futility of Satan. Because can you think about, even from the biblical record, and even human history since the ascension of our Lord Jesus, how so often government powers, pagan rulers, uh, demonic authorities even, have waged war against the church in such a way that it seems as though it's teetering on the edge of collapse. But then what happens? God's people actually end up prevailing. Uh, they continue. Uh, they remain. Because Satan is throwing everything he can from his kingdom of darkness against the people of the kingdom of light. But Jesus has said, hasn't he? I'm building my church. And the gates of hell will not stand against it. That Satan's schemes and Satan's strategies always and ultimately will be futile in the face of God's faithfulness to his people. And it's that kind of faithfulness to which we turn in our fourth point, which is the victory of Christ. 
and the victory of Christ. For, for notice what we're told in verse 36, the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself against every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is complete. For what is decreed shall be done. Now I want you to know that when you come to uh, chapter 11, verse 36, through chapter 12, verse 3, uh, what you're coming to is the most disputed passage and a book that's full of disputed passages. Because many people think, and perhaps even many of you in the room have understood and even heard this to be true, that everything in the first 35 verses of Daniel chapter 11 are all about this kind of ancient world of the intertestamental age. Because pretty much everybody agrees that's true. But then at the turning to verse 36, it's as though Daniel's perspective is now, is now raised to, to an era, to an age much further distant into the future to what so often people think of as the age of the Antichrist before the return of the Lord Jesus. And that's certainly possible. I, however, think it's actually not quite right. You'll see verse 36 again simply just continues the story of Antiochus by saying the king shall do as he wills. That doesn't mean that the interpretation I'm about ready to give you is not without some degree of, of danger and some degree of difficulty. But perhaps I can help you understand what comes now in this most disputed passage if you understand something that belongs to Scripture that we call recapitulation. Uh, recapitulation in apocalyptic genres. Now, uh, students, uh, you might rightly ask in your own mind, and you could rightly ask me after the sermon today, what's recapitulation? Something you see over and over, for example, in the book of Revelation. Here's an easy way to think about it. It's the same story from a different vantage point. Uh, some of you, uh, I trust, uh, last night were watching the Final Four, NCAA basketball tournament last night. And what you saw in the broadcast, no doubt, were cameras scattered around the court. Some cameras focused on the visiting team's bench. Some cameras focused on the home team's bench. Some cameras uh, focused there on the referees. Some cameras focused on this side of the court or that side of the court, this end of the court or that end of the court. Some cameras that were there above that were kind of taking in the whole court. And then as you're watching the story play out, do you not quite regularly get replays from a different vantage point? That's just saying something about the same story from a different perspective. Well, that's what recapitulation does in apocalyptic genres in Scripture. It often, in a way that it's easy to miss, but it's what the text is doing, it's going back and saying, from a different perspective, something about the same story. So what I think we see in verse 21 through 35, articulating the realities that belong to Antiochus, is just something we see now from a different perspective in verse 36 of chapter 11 through verse 3 of chapter 12, because I could line this out for you again if we were in a different setting, something like 19 parallels between those two different passages. They line up very nicely. But what I want you to see is a few of the things that are different. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. It's at that time, Daniel hears, that Michael shall arise, a great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at the time of your people, they shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So it's again talking about this, this coming victory, this, this coming vindication that's going to come to God's people after this period of pronounced and intense 
uh, persecution. But I want you to see from, from verse one is what Daniel's vision here at the very end, this final vision helps unfold for us, is oftentimes when you see wars, battles, conflicts here on earth, according to Daniel's reality, they're, they're often echoes of heavenly conflicts, battles, and war in that unseen realm. And what he's holding out to God's people here in the midst of this victory is a victory that hangs on the vindication that comes through resurrection. Look at verse 2 and 3 of Daniel chapter 12. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness will be like stars forever and ever. Uh, we know Antiochus, of course, put many Jewish believers to the sword. We know that Antiochus, of course, martyred many believers. And what belonged to these believers is something that's going to belong to Daniel by the end of this passage, is that there's a future hope of vindication that's going to belong to all of God's people. This is a future hope of vindication that, that is the resurrection unto everlasting righteousness. And Jesus Christ himself, he seems to pick up on the language here in Daniel 12 when in John 5, he says, behold, the hour is coming. Uh, when the dead in the tombs, they will rise. Some to everlasting righteousness. Some to everlasting contempt. I trust that you understand what's so vital for you to see this morning is not so much do these details and prophecies match up to the particular timeline that I'm most interested in. But what we're seeing at the end of verse 1 is your name found written in that book or where you will rise to everlasting righteousness because you have trusted in the king who rose. Because, of course, we're celebrating this week, aren't we? Looking forward to next Sunday. But it's something we get to do every single Sunday, every single Lord's Day, is remember that we praise and that we worship a king who has risen and his resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection that belongs to all of us at the end of the age. How can you be confident that these martyrs of old were confident in the same thing? How can you be confident that resurrection unto your vindication is coming? Well, you can be confident because the Lord Jesus, he has risen. And he is seated, ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand. And he is coming back at the end of the age where he is going to raise all people. But it's going to be a resurrection that separates, isn't it? As this text says, some to everlasting righteousness, some to everlasting contempt. It's the resurrection of Christ that brings us that victory. And the final thing that I want you to see from this final vision is the mystery of providence. Look at the command given to Daniel in verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words, seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And if you just scan your eyes through the next few verses, what you see is, is Daniel is evidently seated here by a stream, a river. And kids, picture what the next few verses tell us. Daniel's there, and there are these two mysterious men on each side of the river banks. And one of the men asks the guy on the other side a question at the end of verse 6. How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? This heavenly messenger that's been communicating the vision. Verse 7 there is hovering above. His arms are outstretched. He, he even gives this oath unto him who lives forever and ever. You'll see verse 7 at the end. 
that it's going to be for a time, times, and a half a time. That when the shattering of the power of the holy peoples comes to an end, all these things would be finished. It's language that's already showed up, time, times, and half a time. In Daniel chapter 7, I simply take that as just the three and a half years in which Antiochus raged against God's people in Jerusalem for a very particular time, a very painful time, but a very short time, certainly a very defined time under God's sovereignty. But you can make it, can't you? All your way with me through this point in the final vision. And you still might be confused and confounded. Well, no, you have a sympathetic ear in Daniel. Look at verse 8. I heard, but I did not understand. Have you ever considered that God's providences in our life are so often mysterious? So often things come to us. So often things are even revealed to us. So often things are spoken to us. It doesn't always make the most sense. That's why John Flavel in his wonderful book, The Mystery of Providence, he said, Providences in themselves are not a perfect guide. They often puzzle and entangle our thoughts. And they might even do more of the same. As you'll notice, it goes on to speak about these different enigmatic time periods, verse 11 and 12. And from the time of the regular burnt offering is taken away to the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Verse 12, blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. I take those time periods to be nothing more than these uh, significant Eras of time, actually in the book of Exodus, the first one, book of Numbers, and the second one, that first number belonging to a, a time of captivity, that second number speaking about a time in Numbers about deliverance. This isn't this what the heavenly messenger is telling Daniel. There's going to be a time in which there's going to be this painful, turmoil-like tribulation of captivity. Blessed is the one who waits for that coming deliverance. So the final verse, in the final vision, verse 13. Go your way till the end, Daniel, and you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. I hope that you have a few texts of Scripture that have a unique ability to just kind of stick to your heart. Uh, these verses that rarely leave your mind or your soul. Uh, one of those verses for me has, has always been Isaiah 33, verse 17, which is simply this promise to God's people, Behold, you shall see the king in his beauty. And so I'm always interested in reading sermons about Isaiah 33, verse 17. I'm always interested in, in hearing about preachers' experience on preaching from Isaiah 33, 17. And just this week, while reading an old journal from an old pastor, I came across his story of, of preaching Isaiah 33, verse 17 once. He said in his journal that it was his conviction that nobody should preach in his pulpit if he didn't believe that Christ and him crucified was the meat and marrow of that place of preaching. And he said he had made it his endeavor that every sermon he preached and every conversation that he had that he wanted to quote, give the peace of Christ to whoever was listening. Now he said that was a lesson that he learned after preaching Isaiah 33 verse 17 at his friend's church. 
He preached that sermon, and as he and his friend were walking home later on that day, his, his friend said across the sidewalk, he said, Brother, I enjoyed your sermon. To me it was sweet. You and I and many I trust in our congregations shall see the king in his beauty. But my brother, you forgot there might be many listening to you today who unless they are changed by God's grace shall never see him in his beauty. And I tell you that because there are so often times we can come to sermons, can come to texts that excite us, that energize us in a particular way, and we can miss that what is the central need of every single soul sitting in a room like this is to live in light of the grace of Christ revealed in the passage. And so what I want to do as we close is help you apply this text in a few different directions and that you might see these applications as nothing more than the grace of Christ worked out in your life. Applications that, of course, we've seen over and over in Daniel as we come to this final section of this wonderful book. So the first thing I want you to see as we begin to close is how the final vision calls us to know the pattern. To know the pattern. Because if you've got eyes to see from this vision, all we're seeing is that a demonic government power rises with turmoil and tribulation against God's people, persecuting them for a period of time. But deliverance is on the way, that some will compromise in their faith, but there will be those who stand firm in their faith, many of whom might die as a result. Now, can you realize it's clear from the historical record that that pattern happened in the first century B.C., second century B.C., really, with Antiochus. Happened in the first century A.D. with the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. It's going to happen at the end of the age, if you understand your New Testament rightly, at the coming of the man of lawlessness at the end, and how many times even in between has that pattern so often repeated itself? How many places even in the world today is the pattern perpetuating itself. Don't be surprised when demonic evil powers war against the church. God's going to keep his faithful strong, standing firm. Deliverance of resurrection is on the way. But I want you to understand something about the pattern as it applies to your own heart. What this text underscores for us is that when the persecution comes, there will be some who compromise. There will be some who profess faith externally, but internally, they have made peace with sin and Satan. I trust that even in the midst of the spiritual warfare that we face here today, that you're not such a person that externally professes the faith, but internally there actually has been a compromise with sin and the kingdom of darkness. So know the pattern. Number two, final vision calls us to continue in prayer. If you might remember from last week in, in chapter 10, uh, the, the reason the vision came to Daniel is because Daniel was praying. He, he was praying for the Lord's promises to come to pass. And what the text told us is that this heavenly messenger, he had to fight through spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places for three weeks in order to get to Daniel and give this vision, which was something to strengthen him to continue in prayer. Have you ever thought that your prayers go behind this heavenly veil and actually influences things in the heavenly realities above? That's precisely what happens here with Daniel. And don't you think that it should be encouraging to us that we might continue in our own life of prayer? That we might persevere in our own fervency in prayer? That our prayers might be somewhat like Daniel's? Those that cause the forces of hell to shake and quake 
It reminds me of the story of Mary, Queen of Scots, who is said to fear the prayers of John Knox more than any invading army into her country. I wonder if you're familiar with that kind of faithfulness in prayer. Faithfulness is the third thing I want you to see, is it's a final vision that causes us not just to know the pattern and continue in prayer, but persevere in the faith. It should be striking to you as you, as you come to the end of a vision that is quite difficult. That Daniel, if, if you have eyes to see, he so desperately wants to know these details. When's it going to happen? How it's going to happen? When is the precise time it's going to end? But what is the command twice repeated to Daniel in the passage at the end? Look again at verse 9 and 13 of Daniel 12. Heavenly messenger says, go your way, Daniel. The words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Verse 13, but go your way, Till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. How many of you need to leave this place today with the grace of Jesus Christ upon you? You don't know precisely what's coming next week. None of us know exactly what's coming next decade, should the Lord tarry. But do you see how you have enough to go your own way? Because whatever comes, is attached to, for the beloved children of Jesus Christ, whatever comes is attached to him who guarantees that no matter the turmoil, no matter the tribulation, no matter the tumult, no matter the pain, no matter the persecution, you will stand with him at that last day if you look to him this day with the eyes of faith. And may you persevere in the same. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would help us in the midst of our weakness and frailty to know your sustaining power, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us insight, that your spirit would direct our hearts to Christ Jesus, that we might know his grace and might go our own way this day in service unto you. And we do pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.